the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're celebrating the reopening of Broadway and all that means for our culture, and then some really disturbing news about Facebook. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. I turned on the Today Show, as I do each morning, and one of their lead stories today, finally some pandemic good news, not about vaccines or whatever else, but they are right there in New York City. Each of the people from uh, the Today Show went to a different Broadway show last night. Oh, fun. Broadway's open. Yes, last night, Wicked, Hamilton, Lion King, and Chicago all opened on the same night. Oh, uh, I love it. Oh, it's such good news. Before we talk about it, just listen to the reaction of some of the people. Broadway's Resurrection Day began when the cast of The Lion King urged millions to rise and shine on Good Morning America after an unprecedented shutdown lasting 18 months. It is time to go back to work in the words of Rafiki. It is time. New York needs it. The world needs it. Bonita Hamilton's boss at Disney Theatrical is Tom Schumacher. I'm feeling exhilarated for the chance for audiences to come back and see it. I'm, I'm feeling cautiously optimistic that we're going to pull through this. And I'm really feeling moved by how the community has come together in a way I never would have expected it. All right, Aubrey, it feels like a big deal. New York was the epicenter for a while of the coronavirus. And now, you, you know, people have to be vaccinated to go to the shows. It's not like it's just wide open now. Uh, but it feels like uh, an important cultural moment to have the lights of Broadway after a year and a half turned back on, Absolutely. doesn't it? Absolutely. It feels like a major moment. I mean, not just for New York City, although certainly there, that's part of their economy and just the staple of what it means to be a New Yorker. But I just think for all of us, it's kind of like, whew, we can celebrate something good is happening in the world again. Exactly. That's really exciting. Exactly. And I feel like things like sporting events and musicals and concerts, uh, plays, yeah. Right? A lot of people were like, they're never coming back or they should never come back or that will, you know, there was a season a year ago. You're like, are these things ever right, going to be back? Right. And so I get it. We're in the midst of the Delta variant. Things are still bad. Uh, but to see these things open after a year and a half, I think is a wonderful step forward. If you saw the joy uh, in these news reports, I like, and then I watched this clip of Lin-Manuel Miranda talking beforehand. Really cool. Uh, Aubrey, there was another big story yesterday in the entertainment world. I'll give a little bit of background. It was the death of a comedian by the name of Norm MacDonald. I I, I spent so much of my day. I really – I'm just going to own it. I wasted a lot of time <laughs> yesterday watching Norm MacDonald clips. And Did I you, laughed. He's a Saturday Night Live guy at one point, oh, right? Gosh. Yeah, and he was a weekend update guy. That's forever. right. That's right. Uh, uh, aside, do you know why he got fired from Weekend <gasps> Update? No, I do not. 
because the president at the time of NBC was friends with OJ Simpson and Norm Macdonald made a made an OJ Simpson joke every week. Come on. And then he was told to stop and he didn't <gasps> stop. <laughs> no way. I'm kind of proud of him for that. Way to go, Norm. RIP. Oh, yeah. They're they're hilarious and cringeworthy. Uh, Google today, if you want to waste some time while your son is sick, uh, Google Norm MacDonald okay. and O.J. Simpson jokes. You will not you will not be disappointed by that. Okay. Uh, but I want to give you – Norm MacDonald also was in all those Adam Sandler movies. That's uh, right. Like you would see him from there and some other things, other movies and shows. Uh, was a regular on the Conan O'Brien show mm. as well. I learned most of this yesterday watching these clips. Uh, I want to just play one joke for you that he told on Weekend Update that just made me just – I almost fell out of my chair. <laughs> it's such a simple joke, and it was so good. Here's a taste okay. of Norm MacDonald. And in music news, number one on the college charts this summer was Better Than Ezra. And at number two, Ezra. <laughs> All right, Aubrey, I love that. <laughs> It's amazing. It's so simple, but so funny. I love it. Well, also the way he says it. And coming in second, Ezra. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that. But Aubrey, let me ask you this. There was – Twitter was – was just going kind of crazy yesterday with uh, reflections mm. on Norm Macdonald, clips of Norm Macdonald. Uh, one of the most crazy parts of this story, I don't know if you picked this up, I don't know how much of this you read, Norm Macdonald died of cancer and ever, and it said a long private battle with cancer. Aww. When you then read the story, Aubrey, he battled cancer for nine years and his closest friends didn't know. Oh, kind of like uh, Chadwick Boseman. So people were shocked wow. yesterday that he died, wow. even though the people the most close to him knew that he had gotten this cancer diagnosis nine years ago. Wow. And so that's another reason people were like, oh, hmm. my goodness. But, Aubrey, let me ask this question. Uh, he was uh, – I don't mean to be flippant. He was just a comedian. Yeah. He was just an actor. Yeah. Uh, why do you think we as a culture – uh, feel this depth, like when somebody like Chadwick Boseman, as you said, or somebody like that, that died. But also, I think there's this particular love for comedians. Yeah. What is it about comedians culturally that that we love and we respect and that strikes close to home when we lose them? Yeah, you know, I feel like the art, at least of a good comedian, of course, there are bad comedians out there, but right. the art of a good, or the artistry of a good comedian is that they put their finger on the pulse culturally so uh with such like exactitude and then like slice it with a knife in a way that we laugh at ourselves you know what i mean and there's something about that that's refreshing that also helps us like um self evaluate but then yeah. takes us outside of ourselves to laugh at ourselves and there's something very like joyful freeing healing um even convicting in a sense about what really good comedians can do right. and and i think sometimes the reality is too like it's just good to laugh like it's good for the soul it's good for the heart it's good to experience joy it's good to laugh with other people like I, there's just something really you know meaningful about that for some reason yeah i remember ian when we were talking about comedy years ago early on in the show he said uh, I, this always stuck with me. He he uh, he threw out there that comedians, in many ways, are the prophets of our day. Mm, that they can yeah. say things that are biting and, like you said, convicting, but in a funny way that make you go, "Oh, that's funny and and uncomfortable." Right? Because it's true. Right? Right? And that so often we take ourselves so seriously yes. that that we 
that sometimes just by laughing at ourselves, it also makes us realize things about ourselves. Yeah. So I would encourage you, you all of you out there, go take some time and just Google Norm McDonald and you're going to come up. You will laugh. You will laugh. <laughs> There'll be some uncomfortable sure. things, but I would encourage you to do so. Well, coming up next, there is a disturbing story that came out about Facebook, Instagram, and teenage girls. Oh, As no. a dad of girls, uh, this one really got me going, and I want you to hear about it next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. All right, Aubrey, I've got two daughters. You and I both have three kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so social media is really something to wrestle with with teenagers. Yes. What's too soon? What's What do you allow them to do? And, and I read something, and we touched on this the other day, but this story progressed further that just uh, made me really angry as a dad of an a 17 going on 18 year old daughter uh, I got a 14 year old son and then I have a 12 year old daughter but this focuses on teenage girls so Aubrey let me just read from this story okay. uh, and then I'm ready for your anger I'm ready for your <laughs> here we go I'm reading out of the New York Post, but this was all over the internet. Facebook has conducted internal studies that found Instagram is harmful to teen girls and exacerbates body image issues, anxiety, and depression, even though the company's executives have publicly extolled the mental health benefits of social media, a new report says. Facebook, for the past three years, has been conducting studies into how its Instagram app affects its millions of young users, repeatedly finding, listen to this, that it's toxic for many of them, Mm. especially teenage girls. Mm. 32% of teen girls said that that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. Mm. We make body image issues worse for one in three teenage girls. And I'll end here. It says, teens blame Instagram for increases in the rate of anxiety and depression. This reaction was unprompted and consistent across all groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's more to it here, Aubrey. But basically, uh, let me start. Let's go. Let's take this two directions. First, the angry direction. Facebook and Instagram know this. Yes. uh, But have publicly said it that it's not true. Yeah. But two... What is the role of Facebook and and Instagram? They are in the business of making money. Yeah. What is their role here when they kind of learn it's not good for teenagers? Our app is not good for them. It's having a negative effect. So let's start first with the lack of of, um, saying what they knew to be true. I I also want to add one thing from that New York Post, Brian. It said, among teens reported having suicidal thoughts, 13% of British users, 6% of American users said the desire to kill themselves came from Instagram. And they know that. Mm. Um, You know, I, I think it is absolutely morally horrific that they know this stuff and have not done anything about it. Mm-hmm. So some things that they could be doing come to the surface with this report. 
um, begin to probably change the age of users and then do some proactive, like, okay, if we know this is harming young girls, then what are the proactive things we can do? How can we celebrate body positivity on Instagram and Facebook? How can we create support groups on Instagram and Facebook? How can we have representatives that are like on Facebook or Instagram specifically creating accounts that are to empower young girls and celebrate diverse body images and give these young girls tools. Now I know Facebook and Instagram are not the church. I know that they are not psychologists. I know they're out there to make money. And so maybe that's expecting too much from them. But to me, it's, it's reprehensive that they know about this, that it's going to the point of death for the next generation Mm -hmm. and they're not stopping it. I mean, to me, it says like, I shouldn't be on Facebook and Instagram myself because then I'm just supporting this. Yeah, they said internally, they said the features on Instagram specifically push teens towards eating disorders, an unhealthy sense of their own bodies and depression, the internal research found. Mm. Yet recently, even Mark Zuckerberg denied publicly Mm. uh, what they seem to have found privately, internally. You know, and it Uh, says something, I don't mean to interrupt you, Brian, but you you, you and I have both talked about the... um, uh, you know, the documentary on Netflix, what is it called? The social dilemma, uh, so, the social dilemma yep. <clears throat> and how the, the founders of many of these platforms, social media platforms, don't let their kids on them. That's right. And if the, the starters aren't letting their own kids on them, then really we need to search like, should our kids be on them? That's a good point. That's a really good point because it gets to the other question. Should Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook be held accountable for this? Should they care, Aubrey? Or is really the way it works is they're in the business of making money. And one of the ways they make money is to get teenagers onto their Mm -hmm. accounts. Is this really just a parental issue? And someone like Mark Zuckerberg should say, listen, it's not our job to make sure. Or do they have a a public, um, uh, you know, do they have a responsibility yeah. uh, to the goodness of our of our society to go listen? Yeah. It might cost us some money, uh, but for the common good, if you will, uh, we've got to make some changes to do something here. Or is this just on parents? Yeah, no, I, I think two things. I think absolutely they should be held accountable. And part of that is anytime you're having kids under 18 on your site, there's a responsibility, period. If it was all adults, I would say that's a different conversation. They're allowing kids, I think, it, what is it, H- 12, 13. Yeah. Yeah. It's young. So, um, yes, absolutely. They have a responsibility, especially because the folks at Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg included, um, seem to present themselves as being very woke and very for the people. Mm -hmm. And very, so if you're going to present that, then you do it all the way. But I also think like where we can't be naive is this is one of those, and you know, I'm going to get spiritual and preachy here, but this is one of those moments where you go, okay, there are powers and principalities at work. Like there are forces of darkness at work. And um, so we cannot be naive as Christians where the money is that's ca- and that money is leading to evil. Like that's mm. the work of the enemy. And so we, I think, ha- cannot be naive as Christians. We cannot be naive as parents. Like we, both things are true. Facebook needs yeah. to be held responsible. Parents, we got to like get a little bit smarter. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a well put. Now, uh, Facebook did over the summer uh, kind of acquiesce and they started ending targeting advertising to its youngest users and adding some privacy protections. And so they made some changes. But again, this is internal data that they have 
that nobody knew about mm. and that is just coming out. Aubrey, what is the one takeaway for us as parents? My kids are all on Instagram. Like yeah. I read this and I get terrified yes. knowing that we've led our kids on Instagram, excuse me, and that they're smarter than us. Right. So, you know, any controls that we have. So what, <laughs> right. they're gonna work for, what do you think is the takeaway for uh, a parent maybe who's thinking that going, man, my kids are on this. What, yeah. what should I do now? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we've said this on the show, but you just have to have an open dialogue with your kids yeah. and yeah. especially teen girls struggling with body image issues. I mean, the reality is like body image stuff goes all the way back to the dawn of time. So that's not a new issue. But we have to be constantly talking with our young girls about their value and their worth, who they are in Christ, and then just keeping an open dialogue like, hey, are you seeing some of these things? How does that make you feel? Let's talk about that. Maybe you shouldn't follow this person on Instagram. Maybe you should take a break from Instagram for a season if it's not good for your soul and give them the tools to be able to talk about it. Give them the tools to be able to say no and draw their own boundaries and have some agency in this as well what they're consuming, what they're not consuming. And then I just, I think my fear, generally speaking, Brian, is that we're raising a group of kids who see themselves as commodities and they're the image of God, they're image bearers. And so somehow as parents, we have to remind our kids that they are more than like commodified objects. They are beings with dignity and value in the image of God. And I I don't know. I just think we have to keep pouring that into our kids again and again and again and again. That's really good. If only there was a recently released book climbing the bestseller <laughs> list that maybe would speak into Gosh, this. Gosh, really? Yeah. I wonder, I wonder uh, what that book is called. I feel like it should be called Known, How Believing yeah. Who God Says You Are Changes Everything Available on Amazon.com There you go. Right now. There you go. I know we're out of time, but let me actually, in a serious way, let me ask you that. Would would your book be good for uh, a, an audience of a 14-year-old girl? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I mean, uh, I wrote it for older women, but it is very appropriate. In fact, there's a there's a junior high and high school youth group that just bought a bunch of copies. They're going to do a whole weekend nice. retreat on Known. And so I would absolutely, you know, parents, you certainly could read it first if you wanted to, but it might be worth, I have a friend who's going through it with her teenage son, actually, just to remind mm. him who he is. So I, yes, absolutely. It's a great resource for that. Well, coming up next, we're joined by another pastor, Drew Jackson. He's the founding pastor of Hope East Village in New York City. And he's the author of a new book on poetry. It just came out yesterday, I believe. It is called God Speaks Through Wombs. And that's like women's wombs, poems on God's unexpected coming. I can't wait to hear from him. I think it's going to be really, really interesting. So be sure to stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are thrilled to be joined by a very special guest. Drew Jackson is the founding pastor of Hope East Village in New York City. He's also the author of a brand new book of poems that came out yesterday. It is called God Speaks Through Wombs, poems on God's unexpected coming. Drew, thanks so much for being here with us today. Yeah, it is so good to be with you. We are so excited to have you. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So, um, so my name is Drew, and I'm pastor. I pastor here in New York City, in Lower Manhattan. Uh, planted a church in the East Village neighborhood about three years ago. So, I live here with my wife and my twin daughters, and um, we are yeah, just doing the church planting thing here. And I write poetry. I've um, been doing that for a few years. So, yeah. 
That's awesome. And Drew, both Aubrey and I are church planters as well. We both start churches, so this is really fun. This and is awesome. You and I were bonding over New Jersey off the air, so yeah, I already like it. You know, I already like <laughs> it. So. Hey, uh, uh, talk to us about not just the book, but how'd you get into poetry in the first place? What drew you uh, to to writing poetry over the last couple of years? Yeah, so um, I first came into poetry, I like to say, through my love of hip-hop. Um, I, I, I grew up just with, with hip hop. I have three older brothers and I can remember riding in the back seats of their cars when I was younger and just hearing hip hop, hearing different ly- lyricists and how they would put words together. And that's where I first sort of fell in love with how words can work together to make rhyme schemes and do different things. Um, and then my mom was also a writer and a poet. And so, um, just fell more in love with that through, through her. Um, and, uh, recently I started to write again, um, during the pandemic because mm-hmm. I needed something as a way for me to process everything that was going on, especially living here in New York. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, things were so heavy. Um, uh, and not only that, but just the larger landscape of things with, uh, things happening with racial violence and yeah. all of those. So I just needed to process stuff that was going on and poetry for me was was a spiritual practice it was for a way for me to engage with what was going on internally and externally and to be present to god and to myself oh drew i love that i'm i'm also a writer myself this is about you not about me but i <laughs> i hear that that writing can be a spiritual practice a mm-hmm. way that you're like you connect with god on a level that you didn't even know you had in you yes and especially the pain of the pandemic to be able to process it through your poetry i love that god is using you in that way um i want to put you on the spot a little bit and ask if you'd be willing to read us one of your poems from your new book again the title is god speaks through wombs absolutely so i'm going to read a poem i'll read the title poem first it's called god speaks through wombs and so this whole entire collection is written um, in conversation with the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm. And um, and so this title poem comes out of reflection on the story of uh, Elizabeth in Luke 1, verse 5 through 25, where Elizabeth finds out that she is going to be giving birth to John. Um, and so this poem is called God Speaks Through Wombs. In the days of empires and puppet regimes, God speaks through wombs rested and discarded because they were unviable. This is what they do. The Romes, the Babylons, the USA's, the men tossed to the side as detritus, what they've deemed unfit to be utilized. But God speaks through wombs, birthing prophetic utterances. The object of public scorn, given the power to name the happenings of the Lord. Elizabeth is her name. Say her name. It is she who will be the one through whom the covenant is kept. She, like a priestess, speaks her word while the leading male voices are shut enough of this unbelieving religion that masquerades as faith. Divine favor is placed on what we have disgraced. That's so good, man. Oh, you so powerful. I just Drew. was hanging on every word. Me too. Drew, walk us through the process. So how long does that take to craft? And, and just how do, 
how do you make a poem like that? How does that come? Yeah. So um, I am, a, I'm the kind of writer, I'm the kind of poet that um, typically I will get the first line of a poem and then I just like to see where it goes. It's part of the fun, the journey for me. Um, and so as I was working on this project, I would sit with a particular passage of scripture. Maybe it was just a word or maybe it was a one verse or maybe it was a set of verses um, and just kind of just sit with that. Sometimes a poem would come right in the moment. Sometimes I would have to kind of get up and just go about my day and then something would come. Uh, and I think with this poem, I was reflecting on that. What it was that first that that verse in in Luke one five where Luke sets the context of the whole everything that he's about to say when he talks about uh, in the days of Caesar Augustus and the ta- like all of this he sets the historical context and that just sort of I just rolled with that, mm-hmm. um, but with this idea of you know Luke's whole gospel being one where he is very intentional about yeah. uh, centering the voices of of people who have been marginalized in society. Mm-hmm. The poor, Luke is often called the gospel of women for how he mm-hmm. centers the voices and narratives of women in his gospel. And I really wanted to, um, I w- wanted us to hear the gospel narrative through, from the perspective and through the voices of those who are often pushed to the margins. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, wanting to hear, because I believe it's, it's really a, a powerful thing for us to do that because of how throughout history, um, this narrative has often been co-opted and told by those at the center of power, yeah. but, but it wasn't initially coming from them or for them. It was mm-hmm. first and foremost, as Jesus says in Luke four, I came to preach good news to the poor. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what happens when they are telling the story, how do we hear it differently? How does it land with us? And so I wanted to kind of converse with that throughout this entire collection and especially in this uh, poem. True. It's so powerful to hear you talk about the reason behind it, but then also the words itself. There was a line you said, and I'm going to butcher it, so fix it for me. Mm-hmm. But you said, say her name mm-hmm. about, about Elizabeth, which, of course, my mind went right to Breonna Taylor. It Mm -hmm. went right to George Floyd. It went right to other victims of racial injustice and uh, hatred in the Mm -hmm. middle of the pandemic. And I wonder, was that in your mind when you wrote that line? Yes, absolutely was. It absolutely was. Um, I think what I, you know, just to think about Elizabeth as someone who would have moved through the world in a marginalized body, as a yeah. elderly woman in that society, in a patriarchal society, who would ha- was said to be barren, um, and barrenness was said to be a curse, right? Yeah. And so she would have been treated as such, and um, and so just to kind of capture that reality, that that phrase, say her name, to capture um, that part of who Elizabeth, how she moves through the world, and to yeah. bring that into our time. So good, Drew. We're so glad that you're sticking around with us. Now, and we actually just want to jump right in and ask if you'll read another poem to us. Absolutely. I'd love to. Um, So this poem is called Around Tables and is written in reflection on Luke chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, where Jesus is uh, at a a dinner party and he's said to be sitting and eating with tax collectors and sinners. 
people he's not quote unquote supposed to be with. Around tables. We share identity. You identify with me. Though we are told we should not share space, the plates we pass preach solidarity. This is where we plant our flag on the continent of joy. We will not be removed from our native land, evicted from our house of ebullient jubilation. Gifts are brought to this altar. Bread and wine, stories and laughter, fears and hope-laced tears. Presence is the greatest offering we can bring here. We present our bodies, the dedication of our full selves to this moment. The foam that rises when a glass is poured tells us there is no need to rush. Settle in. We give advice and shun the advice given. We take what we like and leave what we don't. Regardless, it's all love. We ask about how days have been spent and get upset when responses are curt. Clearly, there have been a few rough ones. We pray and bless. Sometimes we curse. Pardon our unrefined speech. We pass peace to each other and share pieces of ourselves that would have remained tucked away had we not sat down. We partake in our future destiny as we break this bread and pass this cup and dish out portions of this thinly sliced land. We always eat family style. Man, again, so good. People need to go pick up this book that just came out yesterday. Why is that message of that poem so important in the midst of a pandemic mm. to the church today? What makes that such an important message? Yeah, I mean, I think just the the centrality of the table, one mm. one for um, the church's life and practice, right? The, the table is at the center of what we do, um, but... What the table represents, I think, is is so important at this at a time like this where we are so disconnected. We've been so disconnected and isolated from one another. We're trying to figure out what it looks like to be together again. Yeah. To, uh, and I think this picture of being around the table uh, is one where you know in that in that culture. I mean, then and I would say now as well, but when you sat at a table with somebody to eat, it wasn't just like, Oh, we're having lunch together. It was just, it was this picture of identification with the people you're sitting with. Hmm. Right. Uh, I'm willing to be identified with you. And I think Hmm. at a a time like this, especially when there is so much hostility in the world, uh, there's so much going on with racial injustice. There's so much happening with uh, just so many, I think that just this, the, the practice of being at the table, I think it's so important for us to recover uh, as a part of our life together, to mm-hmm. be able to see each other, um, to to look each other in the eye, to see the image of God in one another. When it's so hard for us to do that, especially across, you know, through 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 our phones and computer screens, yeah. when all we see yeah. is people as avatars, right? The yeah, table, right. the table is about recovering that practice of seeing one another as human. And sharing the gifts that we're all bringing to this table, um, that everybody has a gift to offer at this table. That's so good, Drew. Um, I want to step out of your 
words of poetry for just a little bit, although this is certainly connected because I know your ministry in New York obviously impacts your writing. But can you just give us a picture, give our listeners a picture of what the past year and a half has looked like as a pastor in the East Village? Yeah, it has been hard. <laughs> yeah. um, there's been, I mean, I think for, for all of us, right, trying to navigate uh, the ministry of being the church together, um, which depends so much on presence, uh, trying to navigate that in a world where we're so disconnected from each other, uh, where we can't be together. So meeting, obviously, the adjustments of meeting through Zoom and all sorts of different computer platforms and things like that. Um, but also for us, one of the things we're constantly asking as a community is, what does it look like for us to tangibly love our neighbors well? Um, right, Our vision as a church is to bear witness to the kingdom of God by seeking the flourishing of the East Village, the Lower East Side, and all of New York City. And so if we're, we want to be a community that is actively living that out in real time, um, trying to figure out ways to do that in the pandemic is, is challenging. Um, mm. when we can't show up in the same ways for our neighbors because it's not safe. Right. Um, and so we had, uh, it was amazing. It was amazing to see the ways that our, our community began to just be creative about how to love one another well and come alongside of our neighbors. Um, whether that be through, um, trying to partner with different organizations in our neighborhood that were, um, doing beautiful work, uh, checking in on people with, uh, the housing crisis that's happening in our city and that was exacerbated during the pandemic and just letting people know about eviction moratoriums and things like that. Um, just uh, making sure people had food to eat. Uh, um, so um, connecting with organizations that were doing that, the, the flood of generosity of people just giving, giving of their time and their resources. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so, uh, and one story, you know, we have, uh, there's an elderly woman in our congregation who um, right before quarantine started, she had a fall and she ended up having to be in like a rehab facility, but we hadn't heard from her. And so then quarantine hit and we didn't know we hadn't heard from her. We didn't know where she was. Um, and, and one of our, uh, one of our, our people went and just went to check just to see and ran into one of her neighbors and, um, you know, they updated her and we were able to, uh, you know, coordinate care for her. But but her neighbor, who is not a follower of Jesus and who has been very distant from the church, said, you know, um, just to see the way that you all have shown up to just love her has been a real encouragement to me. So thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just so just the very tangible act of love was uh, was a witness in the midst of this pandemic. So yeah, they're just trying to figure, we've been trying to figure that out of, of how to continue yes. doing that. Yes. It's so true right now. And Drew, this has been our pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us before we let you go. Uh, where can people connect with you? Where can they pick up your book, read your poems, maybe find you on social media? Where's mm -hmm. all the places people can find you? Yeah. So uh, you can pick up the book anywhere books are sold, uh, your local independent bookstores. You can, you know, Amazon, wh wherever you're looking. And as far as social media, uh, I spend most of my time on Instagram. So you can follow me at uh, d.jacksonpoetics. Uh, I'm also at djacksonpoetics on Twitter. Um, or you can check me out at djacksonpoetics.com. Thanks again, Drew. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Yes, thank you for having me. 
Drew Jackson is the founding pastor of Hope East Village in New York City, again, the author of God Speaks Through Wombs, poems on God's unexpected coming. Go get yourself a copy for you and for a friend, maybe for a group of people today. You will not regret it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian Fromm and we are thrilled that you've been with us today. We're ending the evening as we like to do with something encouraging or inspiring or thoughtful for you to consider. And this is going to seem a little heavy, but then we're going to bring some hope to the topic. Okay, Brian, I'm assuming because you're a human adult, you've been let down by someone at some point in your life. Okay. How do you recover from that? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, and obviously we're talking like if they've really let you down. Like yeah, it, like it, big, big time, hurt. big time. Not just, you know, forgot to like return your phone call, but like really have hurt you somehow. So I I don't know that I recover well. I tend to hold on to things mm-hmm. where I've been hurt. Um, not in like a bitter way, but in like a, man, I want closure. I want, you know, I want this to be made right. I want this sense of justice. Yeah. And oftentimes that doesn't happen. Like you can't control the way the other person uh, works out. And so, you know, let's take it from a pastor end. That person that you've invested a lot of time, you thought they were your friend, they leave your church and just yeah. don't even tell you. Yeah. Like I'm not one of those pastors who just goes, well, it happens. I literally talked to a pastor the other day who was like, you just got to let it go and move forward. I'm like, do you actually feel that way? He's like, yeah, that's the only way I could survive. And I'm like, mm. that's really cool. I don't think I could do that. Yeah. I don't think I have that in me. And so, Aubrey, I think I would answer that as saying I don't necessarily do well when people – when I feel wronged by people yeah. or let down, um, I tend to hold on. Not Again, not in a bitter way, but in like a, ah, can't we make this right? Can't we make mm-hmm. this right? So uh, it's certainly a struggle of mine. What about for you? Yeah, I mean I would say similarly. It's, it's interesting you said that because Kevin is one who's pretty good at um, – compartmentalizing, I would say in a a healthy way, uh, just going with the example you gave when people leave your church. And of course, we know not all of you listeners are church leaders, but a family member, a friend lets you down. Kevin will be like, okay, moving forward. Mm. And it hurts him, but he doesn't dwell on it. Where I will like cry, you know, I'm like, why did they leave? What did we do wrong? And then I do tend to you know, in my sinful nature, I think I do tend to get a little bit bitter about it so. and yeah. hold on to it in a way that is probably not honestly healthy. And then I just don't know what to do. I think that's, that's where good. I sometimes get stuck is like, well, do you follow up? Do you let them go? Do you send them flowers? Do you write them a card? Do you meet for <laughs> dinner? Do you like, you know, I, I really, I do wrestle with that. But the reality is, I mean, this is humanity, right? Like we are going to let each other down. This is funny, Brian. Are you watching Ted Lasso season two? I desperate. I need to. I have not. I went through season one. I've not been able to watch season two yet. Okay. So this is not a spoiler alert, but this has to do with what we're talking about. There was a conversation uh, in the last episode about fathers and sons. And one of the characters said, I am trying to forgive my dad for who he isn't and accept him for who he is. And I was really, it was funny. I was like, wow, Ted Lasso just like convicted me. The Holy Spirit just used Ted Lasso, not even about my dad, but just about people in life that maybe I hold to unrealistic standards, expect them to be someone they're not. And what if we did allow people to be who they are 
and forgave them for who they're not. I mean, isn't yep. that sort of grace right there? Like, I that's- mean, that is like gospel according to Ted Lasso. That's that is solid. But I'm yeah. like you, where you just kind of go. I don't know. Here's where I really struggle is okay. when somebody else has done something that you think is wrong to you. Again, they've mm-hmm. ghosted you. They yes. said something about you. Yes. And you're just like, no, no, they need to make that right. But you can't make another person make it right. 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 Like you can't go, hey, you you need to make this right. Instead, it's it just is. It, it, you have to be able to let go. And man, do I really struggle with that. That's what's difficult in this conversation because it's not even like I'm hurt and I want to be their friend still. I'm like, no, I want closure and it should, you should want it too. (laughs) Yeah, you should want it as badly as I want. Okay, so we're going to talk about an article at Relevant Magazine in just a minute, but let me ask you a follow-up question if you don't mind, Brian. So I'm assuming, I mean, you're a pastor, you're counseling people. Someone comes to you and says, this person let you down, what do I do? You're not going to tell them like, just deal with it. Or you're not going to, you're not going to tell them to do what you're saying you and I do, right? right? Like hold on to it. So how do you actually counsel people in your church who feel like they've been let down by somebody? Yeah. Again, it depends on the relationship. Uh, you know, if it's somebody that you're still in relationship with, like I, I encourage them, you got to go, you might need to make the first move here and talk to yeah. them. And I have said to people that exact setting I'm telling you that I struggle with, I have told people you have two choices here. Uh, one is to go confront them and talk to them and and work it out or let it go. Mm-hmm. Like you, those are your two choices. I yeah. instead often live in choice number three. <laughs> um, but but really, uh, those are your only two choices. Yeah. You either have to move that ball forward and have the hard conversation, even if you weren't the one in the wrong. Yeah. Uh, or you got to let it go. And yeah. easier said than done. But those are really your only two choices. Yeah, that's good. That's wisdom right there. I see why you're a pastor, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, all right. At Relevant Magazine, they have an article right now called So Your Parents Let You Down. Now what? And mm. what I think is fascinating about this article is really it's about more than parents. It's about so people let you down. Now what? Yeah. And some of the things that they talk about are things you've said. You have a choice how to respond. You are not stuck as a helpless victim. Your hurt is real, but you don't have to be stuck in your hurt forever. And ultimately what this article says is your parents, I'm going to just, I'm going to use some uh, editorial licensing here and say people will mess up. They have, they did, they will. There's no such thing as perfect people. You have reason to feel deep pain, especially when it is your parents, because with parents, there's an expectation that they're going to love you, not abandon you, right? They're going to care for you, not betray you. But then again, you get to choose how to respond. And what this article goes on to say is the gospel provides a way to forgive. And this is interesting. This depends only on you. Mm. And this goes back to something you just said. The article says forgiveness means to let go of your grip on the grudge. The alternative, unforgiveness and bitterness. Would you say that's true if you don't forgive? It only leads to unforgiveness and bitterness, Brian? I do. And and that's what the unfairness of it is because you feel like, well, they should feel bad too, but often the person who's done that doesn't feel what you're feeling. And right. so that's why I say you either got to deal with it or let it go because it is just on you then. And you're just the one um, who is who is being torn apart by it. You know, the, the idea about parents, uh, uh, being a parent has made this really convicting, right? Like, okay, yeah. I'm my parents, my kids are going to feel this way about me at times. And how are we going to deal with that? What am I going to tell them? 
Um, so yeah, Aubrey, I, I'm a big believer. If you're if you're wrestling with bitterness and you're just holding on to it, you only have two choices: like deal yeah. with it, get it resolved, or you got to let it go. And I yeah. understand that could take years, that could take counseling, but that's got to right. be the road, the process. Yeah. The other thing this article says is. Uh, the gospel for, provides a way to reconcile, and this is a two-party deal. So while forgiveness depends on you, reconciliation has to be both parties. And so uh, reconciliation is not an option when one party, the other doesn't want it. And so you can't force other people to reconcile like you're talking about. They also say you can set boundaries now. You never need to be buddy-buddy or kindred spirits with, again, your parents or other people who've let you down. Um, it does say God's will is that we love, honor, and pray for our parents, but that doesn't mean we have to be best friends with our parents. Right. Again, you know, use this whatever category, the person who let you down. And then this is interesting. A note for the parents, and we'll end on this, Brian, because you touched on this as well. Parents, you will screw up your kids. That's right. You probably deduced that the point from the beginning of this article. I would say we deduced that from the time our kids came into the world, right? That's right. So what do we do about it? And this article says, parent in a way that plans on mistakes and model failures, inadequacy, repentance, forgiveness given and received, grace and mercy. In other words, parent according to the gospel. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. I think that's a good word for all of us when we're dealing with people who have let us down or maybe we're letting other people down. We can do some relational repair in accordance with the gospel because of what Jesus has done for us. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much everybody for joining us again today on The Common Good. We'll be back here tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 